Hello and welcome to this episode of Social X, the monthly podcast from Humentum. My name is George Miller and I'm your host on this episode. Last month in London I was fortunate enough to meet Humentum's new CEO, Dr Christine So. Christine was still in her first month in her new role and we thought that was a great time to sit down with her and hear about her experiences and values, her thoughts on the sector today and her vision for Humentum's future. Christine brings a wealth of experience to her new position, including many years in public health in West Africa, and periods as Vice President for International Programmes at Plan International, and Executive Director of the relaunched Global Health Council. We'll come back to some of that experience in the interview, but when we met on a bright December morning in central London, I wanted to begin by finding out a bit more about Christine's early motivations. I knew she'd pursued Middle Eastern and North African studies early on, so I asked her what had set her on that path. My parents are both professors of geography, were, so I grew up very much with this family ethos around, you know, a global community and that it's very important to understand other cultures and economies and topographies and all of that. I didn't really get to travel with them very much but um, had the real itch to travel. And when I was um, 16, I went on a year abroad to study in France in high school. And I lived with a French family who were very, very different from my family. And I lived in the far suburb of Paris that was a very, very old town that had been settled in great part recently by immigrants coming from North and West Africa in particular. And so I was in the public lycée and I met all these kids who were first generation French, most of them had been born in France, but whose parents were coming from ex-French colonies. It was 1984, it was the year of Touche pas mon pote, the, really the first sense around you know, that there was a clash of cultures and societies and that there were questions of reparations from colonialism and racism. And that really influenced my thinking and who I became, who I've become. And so I really wanted to go to North and West Africa. I wanted to go to Algeria. And um, in university, I wasn't able to make it to Algeria, but I went to Morocco and was in Morocco on and off for a couple of years. At that time, I was really interested in social justice but I was also very conscious that as a white American, highly educated woman from a middle-class family, it wasn't my place to tell people what their social justice should be. And that's how I got into public health. Because for me, if you look at how poor women, all women, I do it myself, but especially poor women, spend so much of their time, it's caretaking. So when you've got a sick child or you're sick yourself, all of your disposable resources are going into trying to find solutions for that person. Your time and your effort and your energy is going into caring for that person, getting them to hospital visits if you can, if that's even available. So it was very clear to me that if women are always busy doing that, they can't use their own voices to seek out social justice for themselves and their communities. So for me, public health was a, you know, it's a prevention approach, but it was also kind of a liberation approach. So that's how I went into into the field of global health and have been working primarily in global health for the last 25 years, but have gone from working on a technical side to very much on a management and executive side. 
so you did you did an MA in in public health, and then you decided to do a, a PhD in um, public epidemiology. Tell me what was sort of motivating that particular specialism there, and and by that stage, were you already thinking about what came beyond? So I did a master's of public health, and that was in international health and population planning, and then I also did the masters in Middle Eastern and North African studies. My public health concentration really had a very heavy focus on demography along with sexual and reproductive health. So again, tying back to women and women's health and and women's ability to plan their own lives. After my master's, I got a job in Mali. It was through a program that was underwritten by the United States Agency for International Development called the Population Fellows Program. And it was really designed to help people who had gotten their master's of public health but we're having the challenge of getting to the field because we didn't already have field experience. It was this vicious cycle. Through this program, I was placed to work in a regional parastatal research institute, the Center for Population and Development. So I went to Mali and I spent three three years working in this research institute that was working across the region and um, really focusing on family planning and demography and uh, information systems for health. And so very data-driven and thinking about how people make decisions and how people can make evidence-based decisions. And when I was nearing the end of that placement, I was looking at which jobs were out there that I wanted, and they all required a PhD. And so that was my moment to say, okay, I'm going to go back and just get this done. And so I went to Tulane University for my PhD, and I did an interdisciplinary PhD which we called social epidemiology, but it was anthropology, international health, biostatistics, and epidemiology. From that experience, I did think a lot about, do I want to be an academic? Of course, my parents were academics, so I said, absolutely not. But really what it was, was that I have always liked to be somewhere where I know that my actions are making a tangible difference. It's not to say that academics don't make a difference. They certainly do. But for me, that was um, too distant an impact. Um, and so I really wanted to be somewhere where I could you know, make a decision, implement a program, allocate funds that would have you know, a really tangible difference on the lives of the women in low resource settings, basically. Your association with West Africa began, as you, as you say, early on, and it endured for many years. Can you tell me about the particular circumstances that you were working in? What carried you know, for people who are perhaps not so familiar with the, the political and the economic and the environmental and the cultural situation? What was that world that you were you were working in like when you when you went there? When I went to Mali in 1993, they were just coming out of a revolution. There had been a dictator for 23 years. It was one of the poorest countries in the world. It still is one of the poorest countries in the world, but not in the same way. And I got there and there was, on the one hand, just such an immense poverty and desperation around things that should be a fundamental right. So again, access to education, access to health. On the other hand, there was this profound warmth of the people that I met. They were welcoming, they were nurturing, they were really excited that I was interested in learning about Mali. And I think I'll, you know, I can extend that across Francophone West Africa. I got that same reaction wherever I went. And so I really felt like it was a place that, you know, could become home. 
when you are not from Mali or when you're from the US, I'll use myself as an example, and you arrive in Mali, one of the first things that people do is they give you a Malian name. So I've got to ask what your Malian name is. Well, so my Malian name is a little complicated because the other thing that really tied me to, Ma- to Mali very quickly was that I met my husband. <laughs> so um, I took a Malian name, my last name, so is Malian. So to that extent, I actually just kept my own name, but I married in. So, <laughs> and Mali is a very complicated place. It has been a much, much more complicated place since 2012 because they've experienced all sorts of political upheavals, some of which are homegrown and many of which come from the global crisis around terrorism and arms and you know democratic upheaval in, in the Arab world. Mali, like every other place, always has competing interests within it. And there have been some very local solutions to that that have held Malians together for centuries. There are outside influences that want to take advantage of various elements of, you know, that Mali has to present, such as, you know, the upper half of the country being virtually boundaryless and outside of government control. So it's a good place for people who have uh, nefarious objectives. So those outside influences have taken advantage of natural tensions within that occur within any society to really try and sow chaos and take over the land and the, the, the land systems and the space that they need for what they're trying to get done. And of course, without being facile, all of that political turbulence circumscribes what it is possible to do if you're pursuing basic health agendas. And there's, there's nothing facile about that because, in fact, what we've seen is that the great advances that we made in just after 2000, so from between 2000 and say 2010, are being reversed. And that was already, you know, just taking people who had nothing and getting them moving forward and to see them being pushed back because of armed conflict is just heartbreaking and frustrating and just makes me angry. But I guess a perennial or a, a recurrent phenomenon in the development sector that that you cannot circumscribe any problem and be guaranteed that outside political and other influences are going to come to bear and, and perhaps, as you say, reverse or make make things even worse than they were before you intervene. That's absolutely true. You know, Mali was a dem- democracy darling for many decades, for three decades, and, you know, had democratic elections and transparency and freedom for journalists to do their jobs. And we're seeing those things reversed. I would just say that that's not unique to developing countries. We certainly see that elsewhere. And I will stay mum on where that might be your country and my country. (laughs) So, I mean, you talked about your intellectual training back in the States, but what what do you think your West African experience has, has, I know it's a big question, but what do you think sort of contributed to the the person you are and the the way that you, the, the way you see the world and the way you do your job? I think two big things stand out to me. One is that I'm very comfortable with being the odd person in the room. You know, I spent many years being the only woman in the room, being the only American in the room, being the only Northerner or white person in the room. I'm bilingual in English and French, but I don't speak Bambara beyond 
a very basic understanding. And so I've spent many, many hours in Mali, but also, you know, when I was living in Morocco, when I've lived other places, being in settings where I don't understand what people are talking about around me. And I think that for me, that has helped me be more sensitive to other cues that people give off besides just spoken language. But it also has made me feel that, you know, sometimes words aren't the be all end all, you know, there are other ways to get to connect with people. So really having to be open to people and having to think outside of the box in terms of how you connect with them. The other thing that, frankly, all those years in West Africa gave me was I'm very comfortable with things going awry and just making a plan B and getting on with it. Working in a research institute, but not having electricity for six of the eight working hours of the day for a week means that you have to think about, you know, well, what am I doing and how do I do it? And transportation that doesn't work and things that break down. And and that's how so much of the world lives. So, you know, it has really converted me from being a very kind of type A, very, I need everything to be organized and planned out to planning is important, but you know, okay, so if something doesn't work out the way we thought it was going to be, let's just do it differently. I guess those two things are always intention, are they? Because clearly looking at your CV, you know, you have done a lot of strategic planning and thinking and global, you know, thinking about the big picture. But at the same time, you've got this sort of intuition that it's got to work on the ground and it's got to be sufficiently flexible, I guess. Exactly. And for me, you know, again, you can have all the learning in the world, but if you don't know how things work in practice, and if you're talking to people who are actually doing things, but you're talking above them in a very theoretical way, what you're trying to get across is not going to stick. And I think that really takes me to why being at Humentum just seems like a very obvious natural fit for me, because so much of my thinking and the way my career now has evolved has ended up being wanting to help people be able to do what they need to get done in a way that is satisfying and impactful and you know doesn't drive them crazy. Let's figure out how to do it together and let's figure out how to do it in a way that makes sense. So did you did you return from West Africa coincide with things getting really bad in in 2012 was that when you came back? Uh, well, so no, we had actually decided to come back a year prior. My kids our kids were getting older and had never lived in the US and I have elderly had elderly parents at the time and wanted to be closer to them. So I moved back to the US with the kids in 2011. And my husband was organizing with his job to come back. And he ended up coming back in 2012, coincidentally, five days before the coup d'etat. So we didn't experience the political upheaval and then come back. I will say, though, that um, we were conscious that it was getting harder to get things done in working with the government and the ministries and the donors and we didn't know what was going to happen, but we knew that it was it was getting more challenging. I saw, Christine, that you were responsible for the, the relaunch of the Global Health Council. An interesting case study, perhaps, yeah. about the whole sector and what is possible and constraints. You know, we've been talking about constraints and, and contexts. 
you know, without going into too much past history, can you can you tell me what your what your remit was there and is relaunching in a way? Does that give you more of a carte blanche perhaps than coming into something that's already up and running, or is that perhaps too rosy a view of? <laughs> <laughs> Global Health Council has been around since 1972. It was known as the National Council for International Health, and then became Global Health Council. It, like Humentum, is a network of member organizations. They had encountered some mission drift, I would say, and some financial issues um, around 2012, and the board had decided to close the organization. But because it was member-driven, and it had this very strong membership constituency, the members kind of said, no, we don't agree. We think this serves a purpose, and we we want to at least take another look to see if it's a viable organization. So they took a look at it and they decided that there really was a reason to have the Global Health Council. They advertised for an executive director and I at that point was at Plan International as vice president for programs, which was a great place to be. But I looked at Global Health Council and I had been a member of NCIH when I was in graduate school. It was the first membership I professional membership I had they held a conference then, an annual conference, and it was the first conference I'd ever been to. So I took a look at who was on the board, and it was a really, really solid group of people. And I thought, okay, this is something I would love to do. And happily, they thought that I was the right person to do it. And so I, I came in to work with them. Uh, it really was a relaunch. The Global Health Council had been dormant. So I was the only employee for about the first nine months there. We had almost no financing except for what we were getting from some truly committed member organizations. And so I came in with a remit that was, you know, to see if I could get it going again. Uh, I would joke that I was the CEO of a 42-year-old startup. And so we did have brand recognition, and it was on the whole very positive brand recognition, but we didn't have a whole lot more than that. One of the huge opportunities, though, about relaunching it was that I was able to kind of leapfrog it forward because, you know, when you're in an organization and you're trying to bring about organizational change, sometimes it can be like steering an ocean liner and trying to avoid the icebergs. It's very slow and it's not very easy to manipulate. Starting an organization from scratch means that you get to, you know, figure out where you stand and then just move forward. And so we really focused on, you know, what is the future of global health? What is the future of international development? And let's not look at tomorrow. Let's look at five and 10 years out and figure out what the community needs and how they need to be supported to really be able to be relevant, appropriate, and viable as we move forward, you know, towards the sustainable development goals and everything. You know, right now we've got a development agenda that has a goal of 2030, we were very much looking at, you know, how do we make, how do, how do we assist members and the larger community be doing the right work to get us towards those goals and towards 2030? So, Christine, how do you conceive your role, like you meant, if, if, you know, if, you, if you're explaining to someone what your new job entails, how, how would you sort of um, describe it? I describe it as working in concentric circles. So, you know, my first circle is, is the team. My first circle is Humentum. But then immediately outside of that circle, and I would say our board is a very important part of that, but outside of that circle then is our members. 
And so I need to be conscious of representing not, quote unquote, just Humentum, but also, you know, representing our members and speaking for our members and trying to be as good an advocate for our member needs as possible. At Humentum, we have provided capacity strengthening services for many years, but we also more and more recognize the importance that Humentum can play a role in advocating for um, the operational needs of its members, also for advocating and working with donors to come up with, to develop operational policies that make sense. Usually first priority is that the policy is um, making sure that they get what they need done. But in there is also wanting others to come along with them and to adopt the policy and to implement the policy and help them get that done. And so, um, you know, Humentum, I think, will have a growing role as an interface between donors and the larger global community and those trying to implement development activities, whether it's through donor money or through fundraising money, but making sure that we are all, again, rowing the boat in the same direction, that we are aligned in terms of how we need to get things done. It may seem a strange jump for somebody like me to go from working on the behavioral epidemiology of HIV transmission to now leading a network that is all about compliance and financial management and legal and HR support. But in fact, it really is about getting things done. What I have learned over the course of my career is that there are two kinds of risk. There's stupid risk. Stupid risk is the stuff, you know, around compliance where we've got very clear mandate about how we're supposed to do things, but we decide not to do it because we want to take risks. That's, that's the stupid risk. That's what gets you in trouble. That's what gets in the way of you being able to have the impact that you want to have. The fun risk is the risk that allows you to innovate. It's the risk that allows you to stretch in new directions. It's the risk that says, we're going to try and leapfrog to really have higher impact and really meet the goals that we've set for ourselves. And that's what changes people's lives. And so for me, Humentum is an organization that helps other organizations avoid stupid risk and frees them up to take the fun risk and to really be innovators and to really be impactful. And Christine, do you feel any sort of personal frustration at no longer being on the front line? Or is that just something you accept as inevitable as you progress in your career? I did that for many years, and I am so grateful for all the opportunities that I had to, to really work on that front line. For me, what I know is that I can take all of that experience and use that at a higher level with a larger audience. That almost seems like a responsibility to me that I can, and, and I think, frankly, that's where some of my credibility comes from, is that I can say, look, I've done all of this. I've lived it. I've lived the frustrations. I've done it from the implementing partner side. I've done it from being a donor in the field. I've done it from working from headquarters. I know those frustrations, and I can you know, bring all of that experience to this to help us figure it out in a way that can work better for, for all. I saw on the Humentum website this morning that um, the interim CEO, whom you've succeeded, 
described us as being in a period of change and deep uncertainty about the role of the international development community. And I wondered, is that a characterization that you that you share? Is that always true? Is that always a, a period of uncertainty and change? Or is there something sort of qualitatively different about this present moment? We are in a, an evolution. We you know, saw with the Financing for Development Conference several years ago, a real call um, for increased sovereignty among countries that have traditionally been beneficiary countries. We see a greater emphasis on uh, mobilization of domestic resources. How can countries get better at raising their tax base and managing their taxes? How can we have better um, accountability around how money is used? How do countries, you know, account more transparently to their citizens about what they're doing and you know how they're using the funds that they they control and that is joined by the traditional donor base stepping back and saying we don't have the funds available or we don't want to make our funds available in the ways that we've done previously and um so that is a big power shift a big balance shift that we are all working through and organizations that work in international development that claim that they can continue working in the way that they've been working for the last 40 years and be successful 20 years from now are blind or lying. We are all having to rethink the way that we work and we all, and I think there's a moral imperative to do that as well because, you know, when I started working in 1993 in Mali, there were very few people in the country who were trained demographers. There wasn't a lot of human capacity that had been very highly trained that it was available to work in the country. Today, that's not the case. Today, there are so many people who have received you know, first-rate university educations, both inside the country and outside the country, people who have been trained outside the country who are coming back. So it's a very different formula now. And so we... Anyone working, um, coming out of, you know, Europe, UK, US, Canada, we really have to evaluate what our ethical appropriate role is as we go forward. I think the other thing that is worth noting is that certainly in the US, and I think the same is true in the UK, there has been a shift towards this idea that we should treat international development more as business. We should use business practices. We should use business metrics. I think that has brought some very positive things to the world of international development. At the same time, I think that to pretend that we can just paint international development with a business brush and we're going to get all the stuff done is folly. It's naive. First of all, there are a lot of unsuccessful businesses, so we can't pretend that you know anyone who adopts business practices is going to be successful. And second of all, there are some ways that business work that, quite frankly, you know, just in low resource settings with varying levels of capacity, you know, you can't quite do it the same way. But so I think that's another challenge for our sector is to really think through, you know, how can we strengthen the way that we work and maybe adopt some business practices. But at the same time, you know, I think we have to be careful about saying, you know, if we just do things like global business does, it'll all be peachy and we'll solve all the world's problems. There's a reason that the international development sector exists and that we've 
worked the way that we work for so long. So, um, you know, it's working out those, those um, compromises and tweaks to be as appropriate as possible and as impactful as possible as we go forward. And if I were to ask you, Christine, I know you've only been in the job a couple of weeks, but do you have a vision for Umentum of how it will navigate these waters and how it will continue to make an impact and enhance the impact and do all the ethical and advocacy things that you've been talking about today? So the really exciting thing is that Humentum comes with 40 years of incredible experience and expertise. So first and foremost, we're going to continue doing the things that we do so well. That said, we are very conscious of the fact that we need to adapt to the needs of the global south. We need to think about how we can support nascent organizations that are just starting to become eligible for traditional donor funding. They are they have a mandate to take this funding and run with it, but a lot of them, you know, it's the first time that they've ever had it. And so, you know, how can we bring our expertise to help support the the transfer towards global south organizations? That's a big piece of what we're looking at and what we're thinking about. I think the other piece that Humentum is really looking towards is this shift not away from providing services as we have and we do, because that's certainly our core business, but on top of that, really growing that interface between Humentum or that Humentum can play between the donor community and um, the member community and really helping to advocate for a uh, sane policy that makes sense, helping to conduct consultations with the community to get input, to get ideas, that sort of thing that can feed back to the donors and really being a facilitator in that relationship to increase efficiency and effectiveness and decrease frustration. My guest on this episode of Social X was Christine So, the new CEO of Humentum. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube or follow Humentum on SoundCloud for more episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.